Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Jerry Lee standing in for the Manifester. We are so happy to be here tonight with you. You are very important to us. So tonight we're going to continue the subject from last week. We were talking about the story of Babylon not told. And tonight will be Babylon 2 continued. It is an important subject because it covers a great span of the history of the Bible. goes all the way back to the early part of Genesis and starts with uh, Nimrod, N-I-M-R-O-D. And the, the term rod in itself is a very interesting component of the Old Testament Levitical priesthood revelation, which has connections all the way through the Psalms and into the New Testament. Remember in Psalms 23, thy rod and thy staff, they shall comfort me. The rod is quite a revelation. Aaron's rod, it blossomed. Uh, he was chosen over all the other uh, tribal elders because of it. And Moses used the rod when he opened the Red Sea, uh, standing on end so the people could uh, pass through it. He also used the rod when he was before Pharaoh to outperform the magicians of his time. The rod is connected, you know, to lots of things. And how does that connect with Babylon? Well, uh, it connects throughout the whole uh, Bible, really. And we will touch on it if we have time. It may have to uh, be uh, explored in uh, Babylon number three. But we'll just see how it all goes. There are some particular things I want to reiterate that we discussed last week because uh, they are um, relevance to really understanding this message. Now, one of the things that was important that we discovered when we were reading um, in the book of uh, Genesis, we discovered that um, Babel is also equal to the name Babylon. So Babel, Babylon, they're really the same name. And what it really stands for is confusion of the language. And we came to understand that it actually was the effect of what the Lord did that caused Babylon to be called that name, because when he came down in their ziths, and they put this very high keen signal on, it caused the hearing to be affected, and this ended up diversifying the language of the people of Babylon. And after that, uh, it began to separate into different tongues of different tribes and nations. And eventually, uh, you have what you have now, this diversification of the tongues. Interestingly, God made a provision in the book of Acts. It tells about how that there was this special outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And these people began to speak in other tongues, not just a babbling type of tongues, but they could speak in, in uh, languages of almost every kind of tribal or national tongue that existed on earth, all by the unction of the Holy Spirit. So there was a plan at one time by God to uh, divert the unity that was in the earth 
because the oneness of language, oneness of mind, and oneness of ideology was actually uh, causing profound negative effects, not that the unity itself was causing the effects, but was being used by people who were negative to accentuate and punctuate the negative in a way that uh, was very serious as far as the future benefits of mankind or humankind was concerned. So then, here is how we need to recapitulate this. We see that God has something to do with the uh, creation of Babel, which is Babylon, by being involved in an intervention uh, that caused confusion among the tongues of the people, and then ultimately is the reason for uh, Babel being called Babylon, or Babel being called Babel, and Babylon, which is equal to being the same name, one being a kind of abbreviation for the other. Now, getting that down pat, uh, we begin to realize that um, we have to be very careful that we don't just pick up a name out of the Bible and say, okay, this was evil, and this was created by an evil force. Uh, This all has to do with evil and darkness. We have to know what we're talking about. You have to have studied the word, as the Bible puts it, to uh, rightly divide it and to not be ashamed of what the actual truth and reasoning and logic of that word really is. So, understanding that, then we want to go a little further here with who this Nimrod was. And we were showing that in the book of Jude, it records that there were ancient persons who crept into humanity, unawares of people of who they really were, that these persons that crept in were actually people who had lived ages ago, actually were persons who had lived before the foundations of this earth world was ever formed. And to understand that, of course, you have to have been following our teaching on the war of the angels, in which there was the war of Lucifer against the forces of the angels that were under the uh, seraphim, whose archangel was Michael. These names, of course, like Michael and Gabriel and Yahweh, they are in the Bible. Some have to be properly translated or properly interpreted, but it doesn't take uh, too much of the Scripture knowing to be able to clearly show the examples and the applications of uh, these great, great persons, great ancient persons, uh, sometimes called the Ancient of Days. Now, as we just briefly reiterate, there came to be a war between Satan and his angels and Michael, uh, the archangel, and his seraphim angels. Now, Lucifer had at his command 666 billion ophanims who had defaulted. The Bible explains it in Jude that they left their first estate. And this is because in the books of Ezekiel and the books of Isaiah, it explains that Lucifer had an idea. And his idea, after he, as a cherubim, was assigned as a covering angel over the Ophanims while they were involved in the creation of 
this earth and, and its inhabitants, that uh, he wasn't satisfied just to be a temporary cover. He wanted to become the leader of these angels, and he wanted to actually reach a apex where he was the leader of all of the angel groups, and he was at the top rung of that uh, hierarchy. Okay, so as we consider that and think about that, it makes a very interesting proposition. We know that there was a mind, M-I-N-D, mind war, between these two forces that we've mentioned, Michael the archangel and his seraphims, and Lucifer with his uh, takeover of the ophanims that followed him, being about 666 billion ophanims. And then in addition to that, and this is what I'm getting to and I want to talk about, he was a an archangel, a co-archangel himself. And co-archangels and archangels are able to do something that just regular angels cannot do. You have to be at least an archangel to be able to co-un. That's C-O-U-U-N-E, co-un. Or sometimes they spell it just uh, with one N, C-O-U-N-E. And co-un is a very old word, but what it means is the ultimate kind of becoming one person with someone else, to the point that two persons of different individual character, two persons of different having their own spirit, their own soul, enter into this parallel state in which they combine into a oneness and begin to operate out of the exact same space of position, same space of mind, same space of spirit. And they then are not counted as two persons. They are counted as one. They both become, in this case, Lucifer. Well, a great archangel will have co-ooned many times. And first off, these people that would co-oon are these entities that would co-oon with an archangel. They would have had to have reached a place of elevation to the point that they were equal to the archangel. So then, these persons co-ooning are brilliant persons. They have extreme wisdom, super knowledge, and they're highly capable. And if they weren't of that nature, they would never be able to co-oon. They are equal to being archangels themselves. And over the ages and ages and eternities of time uh, of being involved in the uh, many worlds of creations, these archangels become involved in a co-ooning that occurs many, many times. Some, uh, there can be hundreds and thousands of other angels that eventually reach the archangel co-oon level and become one with that archangel. So then whatever happens to that archangel, like in the case of Lucifer, where Lucifer distances himself from the other cherubims and makes war with the ophanims against the cherubimic order, against the ophanim order, against the seraphimic order. He still has the co-oon angels that were became a part of him. And whatever he decides to do, they will have one mind with him, and they will be doing that very thing. 
Now, we've learned and to understand in the Bible how that Jesus Christ and the Father are the same, but that Jesus Christ emptied himself temporarily of his archangelship connection, and he came down and he took a physical human body. In doing so, he became a super individual entity separated, in a sense, uh, from the Father unto whom he was co-owned. And we understand this uh, also as it would apply to Melchizedek, and of course there are many others. And so most people have come to that understanding that's not too difficult for them because that's been taught for so long about how that the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ and the Father are one. And, and yet, in another sense, they're a trinity. They're three. And then in the other sense of which we teach it, they can become super individual entities because they leave that position and they go out uh, for a special ministry, which is an agreement of the whole trinity of beings. When we say trinity, though, that does not necessarily mean three. We think in terms of those applications and limits of number equation-wise because in our human math, we understand three as being one, two, three. But when we start dealing in the hierarchy a kind of math, then just like three can be one, a thousand can be one, or two thousand can be one, or a hundred thousand can be one, or, or a million can be one. And so there is a code for being able to know and understand what that one is. Even in the Old Testament, the number one was not an absolute one, because many, many times as presented, it was a compound one, which means that it could represent a whole group, uh, you know, like Israel as being one. It's, it's, it's a nation of many, many people, millions of people, and they're one. This is, can apply to co-owning. So when we talk about Lucifer or Satan, Lucifer, Satan's angels, we are the most specifically referring to the angels that are co-owned to Lucifer. And whatever the number of and presence of those angels would represent. Now, getting back to uh, Nimrod and to this scripture in, in uh, the book of Jude that says that there was these ancient ones that would come out and they, they would be sort of in disguise. Uh, they would creep in unawares. People just did not know who they were and didn't even begin to suspicion who they might be. But they actually were from ancient times, and they were agents, and they had a purpose for taking on a human body and for uh, acting out a particular role. They had a purpose. Now, in the case of Nimrod, the purpose of Nimrod, as we explained last week, was to um, undermine Abraham, because Lucifer, Satan, very well knew the plan for Abraham to become sort of a father of many nations. So they wanted, they wanted to, to stop that. They wanted to stop the Abrahamic covenant and, and the Abrahamic bosom covenant. They wanted that to be eradicated, and the entity chosen for the job was Nimrod. Then, of course, uh, 
we find out in the um, the fourteenth uh, chapter of Genesis that um, Nimrod, who was a king, because the uh, scripture clearly speaks of the kingdom of uh, Nimrod, uh, that would be in the tenth chapter of Genesis, and it speaks of the land of uh, Sinar, which was a country and a very large place in which there were many cities. And so in Genesis 10, 10, it talks about the beginning of Nimrod and his kingdom of Sinar. Then we discovered in the 14th chapter of Genesis that there was a person, and it says, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphael, king of Sinar, you know, that this king decided with other kings to go out and make war against Sodom and Gomorrah because Sodom and Gomorrah stopped paying tribute that they had been paying. And we discovered that Amraphel, who is the king of uh, Sinar, is another name for Nimrod. And that is not uncommon in those days. Many of the kings had several different names. They had several different names, and each of those names had different meanings. We probably will not have the time to get into that today, but those are very interesting uh, considerations. So the story about Nimrod is very interestingly told in uh, Genesis chapter 10 and also in Genesis chapter 11, where it talks about Nimrod building this uh, enormous city and this huge and very tall tower which came to be known as the Tower of Babel. And then, as I said, the Lord and his angels came down. And angels, when they are working a ministry in a earthly kingdom or a physical kingdom, which would be the case with most any place in the universe, they take on physical bodies because that is the only way in a physical realm that you can express yourself. Spirit is not easily capable of expressing itself in the spirit body to the physical realm. And in most cases, angels take on physical bodies. Also, in addition to that, angels learn to have a dress that is understood, uh, to have a style of, of speaking that is understood. So they are prepared uh, to be able to deal with the humans, with the mortals, in, in almost every sector of human life. Very interesting and very important, then. This is a, a thing that goes on, and it's happening at uh, many different intervals throughout the ages of time. It's going to continue happening for, as the Bible calls it in the 105th chapter of the Psalms, and that is when connected with the 90th chapter of Psalms, Psalms 90, Psalms 105, it's going to go on for 70 to 80,000 years. 
and that is the covenant given unto Abraham of the Abraham's bosom, Abraham's bosom representing the time in which the people will be able to fulfill the promise of God that every individual would have a time and a chance that would be equal to every other individual as far as their choices and as far as their destiny and as far as their salvation. Okay, now we're, we're coming. Then we, we have Satan, Lucifer Satan, who has co-owned with many thousands of other cherubim, and they are all his agents, and they come down and they can take bodies. Sometimes they do it by what is called walk-in. Someone who um, maybe uh, is uh, reached a point of they're getting ready to die, or someone who just has lost cognizance by some kind of a disease, the walk-in comes into that body, heals that body, but takes over the cognitive factors and deals with the memory so that the memory can only relate now to the new entity that has taken over the body. And it has the knowledge to be able to cover with all the other people who have previously known that entity. So uh, there's many, many stories that could be told there. But once you realize that and how this Ko'un works, that uh, these cherubims that are saying his angels are those uh, who Ko'un with him. So he has the cherubims that Ko'un with him. They could be thousands, thousands, and thousands, many thousands. And then he has the, um, the Ophidims who followed him because they believed that he had this super knowledge and was given the correct information. And they had been assigned to Lucifer, and Lucifer assigned to them, and that was all in acquiescence to Yaviel and to the Ophidim's other leaders because he was to be their covering angel while the leader angels went into the creation to spirit the creation and to bring forth Lanolution. Okay, so now, once you understand that co-owning, you can better understand as I go on with my teaching and so forth. We're going to start then out of the book of Daniel. And there's a uh, very interesting teaching in Daniel that we want to get into and that you'll find very interesting. Let's start with uh, chapter 4. And it says, Nebuchadnezzar king unto all people, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied unto you. Now, when it says all the people and all the nations and all the languages, in most cases, it is just referring generally to the nations that were known of in what was considered the main world at the time does not mean that there could not have existed tribes and other people all around the globe or you know, clear across uh, the earth that didn't even know about Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar didn't even know about them. They were just insignificant. But these main nations that were in this general area that was developing was an area and a group of nations that were all under the authority of Nebuchadnezzar. He was a powerful king and had a powerful army. Now, it goes on to say, 
verse 2 of chapter 4, I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God had wrought toward me. And we can see here that this king is a king that was of the nature that he had a belief in God. Now, that does not mean that he believed in the same God as the Hebrews did. does not mean that he believed in the same God that you believe in. There are many different slants in different religions and different theologies and different ideologies of how people believe about God. And they have a considerable amount of differences in opinion. But generally speaking, when you look at the paganness of the times and the ignorance that existed in those days of people really understanding the message of God and really understanding who God was in a certain kind of way, uh, these people that, that believed that there was a God had a kinsmanship with the people who uh, believed that there was one God, and that was the Hebrew God, and etc. So Nebuchadnezzar did believe, and he was interested in things about God, and uh, he wanted to show the signs and the wonders. And he had some very deep, interesting insights that had to, had to do with this whole uh, revelation. Okay, let's go on. How great, this verse 3 of chapter 4 of Daniel, how great are his signal, his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar was at rest in his house, flourishing in his palace. I saw a dream. And it made me afraid. The thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head, they troubled me. Therefore I made a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Then came in the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, and I told the dream before them, but they did not make known to me the interpretation. But at last Daniel came before me, whose name was Belteshazzar. Now his Hebrew name was changed to a Babylonian name, and that was the name Belteshazzar. According to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, before him I told the dream, saying, and then it goes to the ninth verse. O Belteshazzar, Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth you, tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen and the interpretation thereof. Thus were the visions of my head in my bed I saw. And behold, a tree in the midst of the earth and the height thereof was great. And the tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of the earth. And the heavens uh, thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, 
and in it was meant for all the beasts of the field. They had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the bows thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. Now, it's interesting of the, the parables, the symbols, the various kinds of metaphors that you find in the Bible. It's quite an, an often thing. And it is important to learn what those symbols and metaphors mean, because if you don't, then your chance of really having an understanding of the Bible and the Word of God is very slim. So what we see here in this case, you know, I'm getting ahead of the interpretation of Daniel, but I just want to make these points, that in this case, the tree represented this king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. So in the telling of these uh, dreams and the telling of these insights, sometimes a physical thing that was not human would represent a human. And this great tree was representing a great human who was a great king. And we also see in the book of Genesis how that the river that went into the Garden of Eden split off into four different uh, streams or four different rivers. And we learn from that in the manifest teachings that these four streams represent the four kinds of humankind. And so that these rivers and waters represent humankind. We find in the 17th chapter and the 15th verse of Revelations that an angel interpreted to John that the waters that the woman set, set on were nations, peoples, kindreds, tongues, and had, had to do in many different descriptive ways with human beings. So it's very important that to know these, because if you didn't know that, then you would be missing the whole story. You'd be missing the story that before Adam, who was the first man with a spirit soul, that prior to him, there was no other humans that had a spirit soul. They had a body soul, that, and the body was, you know, called soul because that's another name for the body. But they did not have a spirit soul. And the Bible describes the body soul as like the soul of a beast. And the scripture says in Ecclesiastes, I pray that you would manifest humankind so that they can understand that they themselves are a beast. So it's connecting to this original beast mentality of the humans, especially before they became spirit soul entities. And uh, it does apply afterwards, too, to those who have not advanced. But there, these rivers that came out of Eden represented the four kinds of, of humans that lived before Adam, who was the first man with a soul, a spirit soul. And if you didn't know that about the rivers, you didn't understand that symbology, then you would not be able to understand uh, that it is Bible when it teaches about creatures who existed and were human-like creatures, and they lived and uh, survived on earth in bodies that had spirits, but they did not have spirit souls. Very interesting. 
Okay, let's let's carry on with our chapter that we have here in Daniel. Okay, so we are in Daniel chapter 4, and we are talking about this great tree, verse 11. And the tree grew, it grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the ends of the earth. Now, that's quite a description for any tree. And I'm sure that no one listening here today has ever seen a tree that could reach all the way into heaven and a tree that could stretch to the ends of the earth. So here we see in this um, hyperbole that there is an extension that rather is lavish in its adjectives describing this tree, but it is legal and spiritually correct to do that because this tree is only a symbol. And it's a symbol of a particular king whose kingdom is so powerful and so great that it does reach to the end of the known earth in his time. And it does incorporate, you know, everything being subjugated uh, to this king that even has to do with religion. It's all brought together in a oneness of, of application as it is uh, recognizing how great this this king, this tree is. And uh, so these things about symbols in the Bible are real important. And if you don't get it, if you don't catch on to the meaning of those symbols, then after a while, then after a while, you lose what the whole meaning that is profound and, and meant to be understood and what it really is. Okay, let's go on now. Let's look at this. Uh, in the we're in the fourth chapter of Daniel, and we are um, going to read uh, verse twelve. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all. The beast of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the bows thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. And though this king was a king like a dictator, he apparently was a king that cared about his subjects. And uh, he saw to it that the people that were his subjects, the people that were under his kingdoms, were all fed, were all clothed, were all taken care of. And uh, that paints a certain picture of this of this person as we start looking at uh, what makes Nebuchadnezzar to be Nebuchadnezzar and why God dealt with him and treated uh, Nebuchadnezzar the way that he did. Okay, so he goes on in verse 13 of chapter 4 of Daniel. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed and behold a watcher and a holy one a holy one came down from heaven. We see that it is absolutely apparent that angels, by different terms, uh, there's cherubims, there's seraphims, there's ophanims, there's watcher angels, that there were watcher angels that were very involved with observing entities like Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, the importance that a role of a leader can play is many, many times major. And obviously, Nebuchadnezzar 
was playing a major role. And uh, so the Watchers were involved with the seers of his ministry. Now let's go on here. In a Watcher, this is verse 13 of chapter 4, verse, uh, uh, well, from the book of Daniel. And a watcher, he came down, a holy one, came down from heaven. Verse 14, he cried aloud and said, Thus hew down the tree, cut off the branches, shake off his leaves, and scatter his fruit. Let the beast get away from under it, and all the fowls from his branches. Nebuchadnezzar is receiving this revelation about this great tree. And at this point, he does not really know or understand that he is that tree. The dream has not been interpreted. But one of the things that's very pronounced is that there was, there was a change that was taking place. And people were, were being warned ab- about the tree. And in the 14th verse, this voice went out. And it said, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and uh, with brass, in the tender grass of his field, and let it be wet with dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast to the grass of the earth. Now, this is the voice that is speaking from the watchers. And they're making a prophecy. They're saying that something is going to happen to this tree. And in verse 15, Nevertheless, leave the stump of the roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and with brass in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. And verse 16, Let his heart be changed from man's, let a beast heart be given unto him, and let seven times seven pass over him. So we see that when all these things happen, there are spiritual forces involved. There's intervention, like these watchers are intervening. And uh, there's a correction being made. And then there is a, a time of destiny, like it's it is an overshadowing of, of, of this person who is represented by the tree that is to happen. And it's, it's going to happen, you know, for a time of seven times seven that has to pass over him. Okay? And this matter is, we're verse 17 of chapter 4 of Daniel. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand of the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over, setteth up over it the basis of men. We can see that um, this thing that has to do with the choice of men is given as a job to these watcher angels. And that sometimes the basis of men are chosen and then they are endowed with all of the mentality, with all of the strength, 
with all the insight, with all the charisma, and whatever is necessary to have uh, to be the person or persons who is to go forth and to be used in the manner that they are selected for being used. And once we begin to see this in the Bible, that and we understand there is intervention, there is uh, agency that is going on all the time with we human beings, and people are being uh, even elected, I think, to high places who may be agents. Uh, that certainly is the futuristic plan. We want to talk to you in a little bit. Well, how do you react to that? And if you find out that this person is an agent, what do you do? How do, how do you react to it? Uh, because that is very important. In most cases, people would want to do the wrong thing. They would react entirely in the improper way. Once we begin to realize this, now you will see later that one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar could not get, could not catch on to, could not put together, was that the heavens rule. He did not understand the extent of intervention. He did not understand how the angels came down and played a part on earth. When Melchizedek was involved with that war that was going on between the nations that were under Nimrod and the nations that were entwined with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, it would have you know been of a different ending if there had been no intervention. But uh, as, as it was, it looked like Nimrod and his armies were supreme and these other nations were just defeated. They didn't stand a chance. But when you see the whole picture, you begin to realize that there was a man. His name was Abraham. And he just had faith. And that's why in Hebrews, Paul writes a thing about faith. And he includes Abraham in that, and, and Abraham's faith. And Abraham took a small army of his servants, around 300 people, and went out to fight against these kings. But, you know, truthfully, his number of, of persons were no match, really, this other army. They were just, you know, very, very small. But what did make the difference that most people don't realize is Melchizedek was there. And Melchizedek was using mind power. And this tremendous force of mind power could, could change things with the armies and w- with peoples and with powers just uh, almost instantly. And so it's so very, very important when we begin to see how that there is this spiritual relativity in the forces that intervene in the human lives of people on earth. We have to be aware of that. If we're not aware of that, we're going to miss out on a major subject. We're we're going to uh, get confused. We're going to get lost. So it's very, very important. There is no question about it. And we're going to get into more of that whole thing about the entities that become involved with we humans and that have jobs assigned to them. Their jobs are, you know, to stop the work of God because they are angels and Satan. So these things have to really be considered in the fullness intent that they are. Now, I, I can certainly understand where there would be people that would question and find it almost incredible to believe that there's anything like that happening on the earth. In fact, it smacks of the conspiracy theories that are out there. And there are so many of them. 
and there are some that have some uh, realism to it, but it seems like the most of them just are imaginative, warped uh, concepts. Anyway, I think how we have to look at this is we have to say, okay, do we believe the Bible or not? Now, there are people who say, well, I look at the Bible as just being sort of like a myth or just being symbolic. I don't take it as a real history. But if you really dig into the Bible, there's a lot of incredible reasons to believe it has some deep factuality to it. Before Adams were discovered, the Bible speaks of things that are seen made of things that are invisible. And before Columbus discovered the Americas and that he could cross the sea and not fall off into an abyss, the Bible speaks about God sitting on the circle of the earth. And as far as the tectonic plates and the movements of continents, the Bible speaks about the foundations of the earth are out of course. And we could go on and on and on. I could even show you where there are scriptures about the space of time, which has an kinship to the theories of relativity that Einstein taught. So we have to give a lot of real serious thinking about the Bible before we begin to put it into some kind of mythological thing. It just has too many facts. Of course, there are a lot of things that remain that people don't uh, agree on or they don't understand, but I think we have to leave it all open. Uh, as far as the universe is concerned, there are things like, uh, you know, where it has similar sounding concepts to the Big Bang, where it talks about God stretched out the heavens. And then at the end of time, it talks about the heavens rolling together as a scroll, going into that ultimate density. There are just incredible numbers of scriptures, and I'm not even touching on them if we started getting into the math and the geography and the various other kinds of interesting connections. is quite impressive. And so my thing is to just believe the Bible, but to understand that there are metaphors, there's parallels, there are symbolisms. That does not take away from the fact that the uh, Bible is making a literal, actual a point and bringing things to some kind of a display of understanding that a person, by putting all the facts and the symbols and, and the metaphors together, uh, would be able to derive something of an intelligent and coherent nature. So let's get back to Daniel 4, and we're reading in um, verse 15. There's already been this voice in verse 14 that has uh, cried out loud from one of the watchers and said, look, this tree has got to be cut down. These branches have got to be shaken off, the leaves shaken off, and the fruit scattered. And then it goes on down and says, after this incredible destruction of this tree, which we come to understand is really a dream about Nebuchadnezzar, it says, nevertheless, leave the stump and his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass in the tender grasses of the field. If a person would look at that in one different way, there is something regenerative about that, how that something can be totally changed from what it was. Even a life could pass from one house, which is a body, and there be a, a span of time, and then there be a regeneration of that spirit, because the spirit is the real life. And when that spirit is regenerated, it comes back into another house, 
which is a different uh, character and has a different profile. It's possible that you could be a man in this life, a female in the next life, you know, different races, different times, uh, because after all, we're all of one blood and we're all from uh, the seed of Adam. So uh, there's no reason that the differentiation should matter in any way as far as the equality of humans to humans. Now, as we look into this thing of the stump being left, but it's being left for a purpose, the branches are gone, uh, the main trunk is gone, uh, the fruit is gone, the limbs are gone, the leaves are gone, but yet there is hope because there is the root into the earth. And that root, it'd be uh, an interesting topic, but we don't have time for that today. But sometime, you know, we, we can get into that. Okay, so as we think about this, as we consider this, let's go on because there's some heavy information here. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass. Make the action emphatic, in other words. And this is to happen until seven times passes over him. And then here is a description of what happens. He is wet with the dew of heavens. He has a portion so that he has to begin living like a beast uh, in the grass and on the grass of the earth. And it's extremely interesting. We can carry this a little further into a, um, you know, a better description of what happens to him if we go a little uh, further into the Bible where it begins to tell the actual event of what happened. Okay, so let's look at verse 33. We're chapter 4 of Daniel, verse 33. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till the hairs were grown like eagles' feathers, and his hair and his nails like bird claws. And he went through a period of, of seven times seven, uh, as to the exact relevance of that duration, I won't be getting into that right now, but I think that does have very deep significance to the times, time and a half times. That is a chord of that. Uh, it's not the whole duration, of course, because he came back and was still recognized by people of his time that lived with him during that lifetime as a king. But I think, though, it is nevertheless interesting that he goes for this period, and in the uh, 34th verse, at the end of that seven times seven days, Nebuchadnezzar lifted up his eyes unto heaven, and his understanding returned. How many people are changed from a sheer beast to a sheer human, or from a sheer human to a sheer beast, or uh, whichever way that we want to approach it, for whatever kind of physiological, psychological approach that we are taking. And the differential is the understanding. Once a person loses their understanding, once a person loses their memory, they are then in a different equation. They become a different, a, a different entity. In that life that he was living as an animal, he was more just like a stump as far as a human being was concerned. He really didn't have the, the memory. He didn't have the intellect. He didn't have the mannerism. He didn't have the customary profile. Uh, he looked like an animal. He looked, in fact, like a, still like a man, but he had 
hairs that had become like feathers. He had nails that had become like bird claws. And uh, it's very interesting when we last week talked about Havilah, which was the land that the Pison River encircled. We discovered that the Pison is in the manifest teachings is a very, very ancient human creation that goes all the way back so far that things along the line of it begin to be discovered. Uh, you may be able to remember the time that no one even thought of the idea that dinosaurs and those kind of creatures uh, had anything to do with being related to birds. But now they have found that there is a relationship to birds and dinosaurs. And in the course of time, as time goes on, uh, they will be able to find out that these pre-Adamic people, these soulless people, go all the way back to a kind of bird man. Uh, this doesn't mean all of the humans were like that, but there were four different rivers, and so there's four different kinds of human beings being represented by those four rivers that split and came out of the Garden of Eden, because the rivers, according to the 17th chapter, 15th verse of Revelations, represents people, nations, tongues, kindreds, and people. And so it's very very uh, important, these symbols, these signs that are given for us to put together to be able to get the story of the Bible, because it is a sensational story, and it is uh, of a nature that uh, not everybody is going to be able to believe it. Not everybody is going to be able to believe in angels. Not everybody's going to be able to believe in walking on the water, being carried through the air. But, you know, that's because we are still in a very undeveloped time. As time is moving on and science is forging ahead, it's going to be easier and easier to believe all of the outstanding, unusual things that the Bible talks about. And, and there will be a day when the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, and people will not have a problem or a difficulty being able to uh, to believe those things because they will be able to see the counterpart of it in science. And then people will look at the Bible and say, oh my, this was written in ancient times when people were throwing spears and when people were riding horses and that was the only kind of transportation that they had and uh, they barely were able to read or write and yet there's these incredible prophecies that tell all of these things way, way advanced uh, of, of their time. Uh, what an incredible book this book called The Bible is. And uh, I just want to emphasize that. And I want you to hold on to believing this book because it is the greatest book that was ever written. And I think that the incredible secret and the incredible beauty of advancing is to reach a point where you can believe this word and you are able to have your mind opened so that these far advanced prophecies and discernings can be revealed to you to where you can see that they are actually things that have realism and they have been and are going to continue to be actuated on this earth. So that is the story of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, who was one of the Hebrew children who was captured. Now, I was talking about this last week, but it's so important, I want to talk about it some more. Last week, I was talking about how that if there was not a case in which the Babylonians had 
captured and had won the war against the Hebrews and had brought those Hebrew children into Babylon, then there would not have been a Daniel who uh, walked in the lion's den and was not scathed at all. There would not be a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who went into the fiery furnace and was not burned, and there was a fourth man walking in there. Those stories would not have happened because there would have been no such persons. So be careful in your thinking about when something happens that seems to be negative. When uh, the city of Jerusalem and the Hebrew Empire sort of fell apart, it fell apart because uh, there was a whole lot of people that did not agree with one another. They couldn't have unity among the leadership. They couldn't have unity in their uh, theocracy about God. And they all were emphatic that they should be able to do things their way and not someone else's way. And then when there were great prophets among them, prophets that had a word and told them what they were supposed to do, they were not able to accept that because it wasn't the way they wanted it to be. It wasn't how they wanted it to be. So if we were to look at some scriptures, and I think I want to do that now before I make my total point here, let's say that we turn to Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is the book just before Daniel. And let's look at Ezekiel 29. Ezekiel 29. Ezekiel 29 says this. And we're looking at the 18th verse. Okay? So Ezekiel 29, 18. All right. And here is what it says. Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, caused his army to serve a great service against Tyrus, Every head was made bald, and every shoulder was peeled. Yet had he no wages, nor his army for Tyrus, for the service that he served against it. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt unto Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he shall take her multitudes, and take her spoil, and he shall take her prey, and it shall be for the wages of his army. And I will give him the land of Egypt for his labor, wherewith he served against it, because they wrought for me, saith the Lord God. And in that day I will cause the horn of the house of Israel to bud forth, and I will give thee the opening of the mouth in the midst of them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now, this story, I told you a little bit about it last week, but Tyrus is described in the book of Isaiah 14:12, And a lot of people have said that this is just a story about the king of Tyrus that is in there. But actually, it's impossible for it to be a story about the king of Tyrus, because Tyrus was not a cherubim angel, and uh, neither was Tyrus of the nature that he had been in the Garden of Eden. This particular person it is uh, talking about, regardless of the agency, we're not talking about the fact that there are agencies that could have been going on. We're talking about the deep meaning of this whole thing. The deep meaning is that the representation at that time was for Lucifer and even more so than just a representation or agent for him. And this representation of Lucifer as 
being a king of Tyrus was because the word Tyrus, for one thing, means rock. And showing how that Lucifer, as symbolized by this king Tyrus, had become this rock. And uh, that was one of the names, as I explained last week, that is ascribed to Jesus Christ, who is called the Rock of Ages. And last week we mentioned about the name of Lucifer, meaning bright and morning star, and that that is the same name for Jesus Christ, the morning star. So we see that there is a counterpoint happening, and there are parallels. And some of them are on the negative side, some of them uh, that are parallels are on the the, uh, positive side. But these things are literally going on and they have been going on for ages of time. They will continue to go on for ages and ages and ages and ages of time. And once we begin to understand that, then we can better understand this message that I just read to you. Here we have God actually um, offering credit and offering uh, good words, kind words to the king of Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, because Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar defeated Tyrus, defeated Tyrus, and therefore he was really doing something that was the will of God to be done. And by defeating Tyrus, it was a, an example that was pleasing to God and used of God to such an extent that it had the difference of the king of Babylon being able to defeat children of Egypt. So we have to understand there is many times, times of intervention, when angelic powers, when agents come and they intervene with things on earth and people are just not aware that there are spiritual interventions. Now, when we talk about this thing with the co-owning of Lucifer being these cherubims, the Bible says in Ephesians, it speaks of the fact that there are principalities and powers. Both of those are plural terms. And that these principalities and powers are the forces that we have to deal with and not the carnal forces of the world. We have to deal with these principalities and powers. Those are plural. Now, you cannot become a principality, which is another word for prince in the angelic world, without being a uh, very high-ranking angel and on a co-equal with an archangel. So these 666 billion Ophidim, none of them were in that place of capability. And so these principalities that we're told we have to fight and these powers that we're told that we have to fight are obviously these angels of Satan who are the co-owned angels who are all incredibly brilliant angels of the cherubim order that became one with Lucifer and are separating out of Lucifer at times to serve as a super individual entity and as an agent of Lucifer. So the whole idea is extremely striking. It will catch your mind. It will catch your heart if you would just take the time to put it all together. It is the only kind of thing that really makes sense and makes the scriptures come together and gives such reality to them because there is powerful reality when you really understand what the scriptures are meaning. And then when you're looking at this chapter that we are mentioning to you about in Isaiah where it's talking about the king of Tyrus, and we are talking there, the 28th chapter and the 12th verse, it says, Take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thou, saith the Lord, sealeth up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You have all the wisdom 
that is full. You are full all the way to the top. You are, you're at the top level of wisdom. You are at the top level of knowledge. You are at the utter point of having a beautiful mind to the point that you have a perfection there. And your past is that you have been in Eden, the garden of God. This is where the tree of life was. This is being written and talked about in Ezekiel many, many, many long, long years and ages after the Garden of Eden existed. And it says, every precious stone which you're covering, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the bureau, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, emerald, the carbuncle, these all, as I explained last week, represent living stones. These were all speaking about the different kinds of angels of the cherubim that were at a point that they were equivalent to archangels and they then became co-owned with uh, Lucifer and became part of him and these are his covering. These are his covering angels. And it doesn't mean because it mentions uh, one carbuncle or one diamond that there's only one angel of that kind, but these are classes of angels that became part of the co-owning with Satan, so that they would become like one entity. And, and those things are very, very important and interesting for people to know and to understand. So here, the importance of this king of Tyrus, as far as the revelation of Lucifer, was absolutely outstanding. Along comes Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who all kinds of people have just downplayed him and made a demon out of him. But yet, seven times seven passed over him, and God saw to bring him back. And God dealt with him with angels. And God saw to heal him once he came into a new mind and a new spirit uh, that the heavens do rule. And so, in our teaching of eternal justification, it says you cannot judge anybody. You might make a judgment of a person who's 17 or 18 years old, who's just an absolute corrupt individual. And then, by the time they're 52 years old, they're just the most uh, perfect, genteel type of individual that you could ever hope to ever meet in your lifetime. And they have so many pluses. And you would never imagine that that 17 or 18-year-old that was just almost abominable was uh, this same person. But when you're looking at these people in the light of eternal justification... One of the things that you see is that you can't judge people because they change, and sometimes they improve. And we know that even Pharaoh, who was holding back the children of, of Israel from being able to leave Egypt, was doing so because God hardened his heart. God hardened the Pharaoh's heart. We cannot judge these people when they are conducting themselves a certain way and there are divine interventions. These interventions are for a reason. They're for a reason to to divide, to separate, to bring out certain revelation, to bring about the understanding uh, that there is a God in heaven who rules. And so, so now we see by that scripture that the extent of the king of Babylon's service for God was so great that he was awarded the whole nation, that whole great nation of Egypt as a reward for the work that he had accomplished in conquering and defeating Tyrus. Now, that's just one example. Let's look at another one here. Turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, and let's look at Jeremiah 25, 9. 
Okay, Jeremiah 25, 9. And let's just take a peek and let's see what that says because uh, these are eye-openers. They make a person think. They put breaks on you so that you just don't go out here every time a leader in a nation is of a different politician or of a different party or is operating a certain way and you don't like it. Maybe you don't like his education background. You may not like his color. You may not like the party he belongs to. You may not like the decisions he's made. And you start making judgments on him. And maybe you start cursing and praying against him. You better be very careful. I want to tell you this. You better back off and make sure you got the will of God. You can preach it all you want, but I'll tell you, he that sows the wind will reap the whirlwind win. It will come back on you. Our war is not with flesh and blood. Flesh and blood will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. Our war is with powers and principalities of dark places. That's what we have to keep in mind as we start thinking and dealing with all these particular connections. Okay, Jeremiah 25, verse 9. Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon, my servant, my servant, will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations around about and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and a hissing and a perpetual desolation. So here is an example that this great king, who is the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who a lot of Christians and ministers have cursed, is actually called by the great prophet Jeremiah and by the Holy Spirit a servant, a servant of God. Again, in Jeremiah 27, verse 6, here's what it says. Let's listen to this again. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. God has given these lands unto the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And the beast of the field have I given him also to serve him. Let's look at uh, Jeremiah 43.10. Jeremiah 43.10. This is getting interesting. And say unto them, saith the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will set his throne upon these stones that I have hid, and he shall spread his royal pavilion over them. And when he cometh, he shall smite the land of Egypt, and deliver such as are to death to death, such as are for captivity to captivity. Now, that is so opposite from what people, many Christian people understand. They just do not understand that revelation about how God deals with different people. Sometimes people that are pharaohs that are looked upon as evil. Sometimes people that are like Nebuchadnezzar, who is king of Babylon. But then, of course, people that were thinking, well, Babylon, that's such an awful name, an awful place. But then they didn't know that it was the actions of the Lord that actually created the name Babel and Babylon. And that it was all for a purpose and a plan in order to be salvation to people. They had to be separated from that diabolic concentration that they were in, or it would have brought people over into the service of Lucifer Satan to the dark forces. 
So we don't always know what is really going on when some leader says and does things that uh, based on radio broadcast and news and based on various people with all their ideas about conspiracies, by the time they get done talking, they, they've got someone made an antichrist. Well, be very careful about joining any of that kind of mentality because if you go back to some of the greatest ministerial type of people and even priests that were high up in their offices, these people have made prophecies and predictions about the antichrist, about the mark of the beast, and have predicted things, and Hitler, and you name it, all kinds of people, Mussolini, were all called these kind of anti-God persons. And when they died without fulfilling what the Antichrist was supposed to do, well, then it became apparent to them that their prophecy was just wrong, that their interpretation and discerning was just wrong. And that has been going on. There are huge lists uh, that a person can go back to. You can even find it on the Internet where they just list all these different persons and churches and ministers and priests that have made predictions, and a lot of them are about the Antichrist and the false prophet and uh, all of those kind of things, and they've been wrong. They die, and they have broadcast and prophesied a false prophecy and because they were not taking care to understand what the Spirit of God was really saying and really speaking to. Now, there's people going to try to tell you that because someone has a better understanding of Hebrew or a better understanding of Greek or a better understanding of the ancient languages, that then you can really depend on them for interpreting and telling you what the secret passages in the Bible are about. But I want to tell you that that's anti to the Bible. That is absolutely not what the Bible teaches. All of the people that really received insights and deep understandings of the Word of God, they received it by the Spirit. The Spirit revealed it to them. And I can tell you this, that there's a lot of scientists, great scientists, who discovered their greatest scientific knowledge uh, by dreams or by just a spiritual revealing that came to them. So just be careful, ladies and gentlemen. I plead with you to be careful. Let's just put all our efforts toward worshiping God and put all of our efforts to not judging one another or judging the leaders and instead praying for the leaders. And like I preached the week before last, how that the scripture on the one side in the Old Testament said, hate your enemies. You know, hate your enemies. But on Jesus says, no, that's not how you're to do it. Here's how you to do it. You are to love your enemies. And if we're going to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, we're going to have to turn around out there. You people that are so on the merry-go-round of violence and hate and being involved in physical retribution and vengeance, you got to get out of that ship because you are becoming entangled in the affairs of the world, of which the Bible says if you do that, you'll not be accepted by Jesus Christ because that is not the plan. That is not the way of salvation. That is not the teaching of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to have over these 70,000 years different nations that may act as Babylon, act as kings. They're going to have different nations that may become a new kind of tyrus representing Satan in a different, more powerful way. Nations uh, that will have be full of antichrists. We don't have any indication in the Bible of anywhere, of any of the scriptures, that it mentions a 
singular person as an Antichrist. Those were always plural. But we do have the uh, very obvious case in which there is a single person who is a false prophet. And that is a great, incredible teaching. And we'll do more and more on that subject as time rolls on. So as we begin to come into this understanding, and we begin to understand uh, how that uh, people change names, like uh, Nimrod was also Amraphel, and he was the king of Shinar. And uh, that when we get the perspective from that name, we understand that he was a rebel, that he did just the opposite from what he was supposed to do. But there was a reason for that. And we read to you in Daniel 10, 13 through 21, how that there was the prince of the kingdom of Persian that withstood the messengers of God and that they had to bring a stronger messenger from God like an archangel in order to defeat that prince because it was such a powerful force. So there are these kinds of wars that are going on. There are these kinds of undercurrents that are happening. And we need to understand that uh, it is a serious thing to know the will of God and the truth about God, and to understand that these things are not minor. We are going to uh, be very excited as we come into all these understandings. I had a brother call me the other day, and he's been following me for years and years, and he says, I never heard that teaching before about Lucifer having these co-owned angels and co-owned angels coming out and being able to aid him as agents. And I said, well, I've, I've said some things along that line, but I've never gone into the detail. Uh, there are dozens and dozens and hundreds of teachings that I haven't completed, and that's why this is the day, this is the time. That's why I'm doing this broadcast, because I'm involved in letting people know right now how important it is to understand this Bible truth. And the Bible is a far-out book. It talks about angels. It talks about angels flying in the heavens, preaching the everlasting gospel. And uh, you can be a person that doesn't want to believe anything. I remember way, 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 way back, maybe 30 more years or so ago, and when I was uh, ministering in a church, and I had people walk out on me on things that today no one would walk out on me because the idea just wasn't advanced in people's mind at the time. And I was so far ahead. I had one minister in Los Angeles where I ministered, and I was preaching, and he called me, and he says, we've got to talk. So we, we got to talking, and he says, uh, we got to close the revival. I said, well, we've only not even been a week into a three-week revival. He said, yeah, but he said, we've got to close it. And I said, well, I said, could you tell me why? Well, a pastor, he said, I do believe that you are a man of God, and I do believe that you have an incredible revelation. But he says, you are at least a 100 years ahead of our time. And he said, it's just so far beyond us. It is scary to us. But he says, I know I can feel the anointing. I can feel the power of God in you when you speak. But he said, uh, you're just too far ahead of us. And he said, i got to close this. I've got some deacons that are complaining. And so that was the end of that church meeting. That was a lot of years ago. Since that time, the sermons that I was preaching then, the teachings I was doing then, most any of those churches would accept and recognize now. And, of course, I've gone in my teaching way, way, way beyond that. 
But it is a beautiful thing to be blessed of God uh, to preach the gospel of a beautiful mind. And God is calling a people together for a, in the beauty of holiness, a beautiful mind revelation, a beautiful mind power of prophecy, a beautiful mind power of ministry, of healing. That is ready for us. It's something that God wants to do. And he wants us to understand these uh, mysteries and these revelations in such an awesome way that people are just imbued with a new way of seeing things. When you look at some of these teachings that I've put in available for books, when you listen again to these uh, radio broadcasts, just don't do it with judgment Do it with love, because love is the most awesome power that exists in the universe. And as you do it with love, God will open your mind and you'll begin to flower. And his rod uh, will comfort you. And you will be able to operate that rod uh, like a wand of love. And just like Moses did when he just moved his hand and it became a rod like a wand. And he could move the sea to pull back so dry land appeared. He could do all these incredible things just because he believed and he knew that God had given him this truth. You are being called into a truth. And this truth is to loosen you and to set you free from the bondage that so many, many people are in. They have been robbed of their rights to be free, robbed of their rights to really be able to touch down on the holy ground and touch those holy spots. They have been cheated because they have been told that everything mostly out there is false except that one little corner that they've been involved with. And God is telling you there is a wide open plain. There is a landing place where the angels are coming down to open the matrixes of this world and allow us to walk in through that open door and come into a knowledge such as we have never seen revealed before. It is an exciting time. And Babylon, okay, yes, it's going to be happening and have a big part in the New Testament. But the queen of Babylon, who's going to be riding one of the beasts, and thinking that she's all connected with the forces of Satan. It's going to be the same kind of thing happen again when Babylon turned against Tyrus, which was one of the places that was being designated and used for the works of Lucifer, Satan. So here we have these two forces against each other, and we're not expecting that. We're expecting instead that it would be some Christian or Jewish nation or some other religiously moved nation that would come and do the war. But instead, it seems to be two kinds of entities that should be on the same side. Well, the Bible tells us that the woman, this harlot woman Babylon, that while she is used by the beast and seems to be in perfect coordinate order with the beast and with Babylon, that actually that the forces dark hate her. 
And they have a plot all along to destroy her. And when you get the Peace Bible, you will see that all revealed about how this whole thing plays out. And it is most astounding and amazing. When you read it, you'll just almost nearly be shocked that you haven't seen that before. It is a message that will make you stand on your feet and want to applaud God for such revelation. So many, many more things we could say, but we probably have fulfilled the service for now. We'll have to take a real fast time to do some Gentile for those people listening out there that have various needs. I would like to deal today with some of the people who have uh, obstructive things in their eyesight. There's so many things that can be obstructive to the eyesight. We've seen some really miraculous healing of eyesights, and I want to just do a little Gentile right now. So if you would just open your mind and accept this energy, electromagnetic energy from my body to your body to uh, send a message and the impulses into your brain and begin to connect with your lymphatic gland and your thyroid and connect with your hormones and this message begin to go out to all of your receptors and those things that are blocked, those things that are bound in you begin to be loosened, then God can begin to clear your eyesight and some of those gases or some of those cataract type of things and other kinds of visual specs that uh, inhibit you, you can be set free. So stand by right now. Here we go. Hypothalamus to the pituitary, pituitary to the hypothalamus to the thyroid, to the lymphatic gland, to the parasympathetic to the sympathetic neural transmission system, to the cerebellum. Begin to send messages throughout the body, through the corpus callosum, to all of the hemispheres, through the batons and the synapses, through all the code indexes of the whole neural system begin to send messages through the ponds and begin to emphasize for the area of the retinas in the brain and begin to heal around about the pupil and begin to bring deliverance into these eyesights by giving the command to the body messengers to begin to do input into the areas of the eye and the retina and that there be a healing and a clearing of those eyes and a great enlargement of their improved vision. If there's any inhibitors or blockers or messages anti to that, they are canceled. God bless you. God keep you. God's face shine upon you. There are great times ahead. God bless you. Mm-hmm. 